out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. This is David Eastall. It's a true story. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be all the way from New York City. Um, one of the new, was it No Wave bands? Yes, it's Bush Tetris, because I spoke to the lead singer very recently to find out more about life, love and poetry. Yes, it was the one and only Cynthia Slee. So, after several minutes of casual chat in getting to know each other, as you do in showbiz, <laughs> it was so showbiz, um, yes, we got down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years and that moment when music suddenly became a big thing in someone's life. Anyway, Cynthia, tell us more. We are seated. We're waiting. Take it away. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. So we had, it, we were very close to Detroit. So I got all the Motown stuff, and those were the first records I bought. And we we watched the shows like Upbeat, and there's there's some rock shows that we watched as a family, like you know, like girls. They were I had two sisters, and they were older, so I listened to a lot of their music. But I think um, my, my that was all in grade school and you know mid mid school, middle school, and then I and then by high school by the time I was fifteen I I went to see David Bowie with the Spiders from Mars tour yeah and that changed my life. God, that's such a good thing to that to be changed like, by. Oh my God! So that must have been so, about. It was so amazing. And was that seventy three? Yeah. So which what venue was that? Uh, and it was uh, Agora. It's called the Agora, I think. Wow. So so was um because interesting enough I I it was it was thank God it was David Bowie was my first love my first love was David Bowie because I bought Space Oddity and then Changes One and it was seeing him on top of the pops which was like wow it could have been so many embarrassing bands before but um yeah so what was your kind of <laughs> moment that that sort of that made you think I want to go and see him live well I I a friend had gotten the um. You know the Spiders record, the first the, um, and I I was like, well, I listened to it and it took me on a little journey. My sisters were listening to Led Zeppelin and more kind of the the other kind of music. I mean they they were they were a lot they were really into like the American uh, Leslie West and Mountain and all that stuff, and it did, that didn't really do anything for me. I listened to it. And I, I was into the Stones, you know, I had like, and I loved, I loved all soul music. Soul music was really huge, but David Bowie, I think it was the look. Like, I really felt like he could not sit on my parents' couch. There'd be no way, no chance in hell he'd be on my parents' couch. And that really appealed to me. <laughs> he was so from another planet. And I thought, oh, this is this is really exciting. I was really always into clothes, so I loved his look. And, you know, he's so beautiful. Yeah. But the songs were, I loved the whole extraterrestrial kind of 
everything. It just took me to a different place. Yes. It was exciting. You wanted, you wanted, you wanted to leave Cleveland. absolutely yes and also at the time you know we slightly forget but there was an awful lot of activity of people flying to the moon or trying to well mostly and coming back and there was that kind of whole slight you know looking up at the moon and going oh there's someone vaguely going towards it or trying to land on it so I think it, it did seem I mean I slightly forgot about that until quite recently but it was kind of a period where all that was going on. And then, yes, you're right, David Bowie appeared with that amazing look, with this amazing kind of, I don't know, I remember there was one particular one, a Mick Rock picture, where he had a sort of, I think he had this silver circle on his forehead, you know, it was, it was you know, beautiful makeup, you know, it was like, but yeah. he just had something else, which was incredible. But I think this, you know, I I remember buying Space Oddity and it had the B-side was Changes and Velvet Goldmine. Yeah, and, oh my god. And I played that thinking, God, B sides are great. And then I was a bit disappointed after that, really. Um, because they never lived up to that first moment where you, you flick the you know seven inch single over and think, Wow, I really like changes. This is the lyrics. The lyrics, <laughs> you know. But that tour was yeah. probably that tour obviously had the spiders and it probably had um uh, Ron, not Ron, Mick Bronson. He was a guitarist. Oh, Garson, Mike Garson on keyboards as well, probably at the same time. Because I think he, when he was touring America, he added Garson on I keys. I think so, yeah, yeah. To make the I sound. Mean, I remember Mick Bronson the most. I was, I was focused on those two. Yes. And I remember, you know, I was hanging off the, off the um, balcony, screaming, "Wham, bam, thank you, ma'am." I was. I think I took my first um, drug. I took half a two and all, half a two and all, and that was very uh, exciting because I had never done that before. Wow, you so were taking everything all, off. like, you know, culminated into that experience. Yes. And yeah, then, I kind of lose your mind with yeah. the music and you become one with it. I always liked that. And then I thought that, I, that, that, that really affected me, his stage presence. I mean, the music... I love the music, and I, I've kind of been a solid fan of his like forever. I loved his last record before he passed. Yeah, love that record. That was really beautiful. But I just feel like he's he was so kind of ahead of his time and so odd. Yeah, smart, weird person. God, we still have some of those people. Yes, left. my God, I know it's all gone shit since he's died. Actually. Um. I know, I don't know, I know. I think there's some connection there, but I don't know. I don't know, but it's hard to argue that one, really, isn't it? So then, um, when, you know, obviously the Bowie moment, God, that's such a good one. Personally, I could have almost been Gary Glitter, but thankfully it was just, I missed that one. Um, And then there was Slade and and Alice Cooper's School's Out was a big number. So did you sort of start to gravitate towards things like the New York Dolls and the Stooges and Iggy Pop and... And uh, yes, yeah. the next bit. Yeah, in art, in art, art school. Then I was by the time I was in college, I, you know, Cleveland is, was a little bit of a hub, so there was a musical hub. There was this, you know, Perubu and Dead Boys and Rubber City Rebels and Destroyed All Longsters, Devo. All those bands played every week, and they were very. You know, innovative, especially Perubu. Yes. And I was in art school, and, um, you know, I got turned on to the Stooges and MC5, and 
on some other music because I'd basically only been listening to soul music. So, uh, yeah, that was like really, you know, in Velvet Underground, all the things in art school, you know, it was just a huge, um, huge scene there. Yes. Music scene in, in Cleveland. And what was your art practice? I was a, a visual arts and portraits. Right. I was a painter, and I uh, then I started getting interested in doing fashion, but films, and uh, I was trying to mix everything together. They weren't having, they were not having it. They didn't like my, <laughs> my ideas. There it was a little commercial. It was a commercial arts school. You're right. But I, but I didn't finish, and I moved to New York in '79. I didn't finish art school. I just started getting more and more into um, music in college. Like I listened all the time. Yes. I was, I was listening to the Voidoids and all the things that were happening in New York. And I thought, hmm, seems like a good place to move. And I was friends with um, I was friends with Jim Jarmish, who was a um, filmmaker but he's from Cleveland, and I knew him. He I, he helped me set up my first apartment in in New York, and I could tell there was something happening just from him. Yes, God, I remember about how amazing it was. Because he did, uh, was it uh, Stranger Than Paradise, Downlight by Lauren and, yes. and um, the mm-hmm. one. Uh, what's the one about the night where there was all those stories? Strange, not Strangers in the Night, that had. Um, all those different characters on one evening. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, 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 my God. Oh, my God. Because my memory is so bad. I know. So I've been thinking about his ghost dog. No, it's a um, um, Night on Earth. That's the Thank one. You. Night on Earth. God, I know. That's what it was called, I can Night even, on Earth. I can even remember. I can't even remember the woman who was the taxi driver, but she... <laughs> Yeah, it's Gina Rollins and Winona Ryder. Winona Ryder. They were the tax, that's a ta- that was the taxi driver one, yeah. Yeah. And so- then there was... There was Roberto Benini as the the priest in the cab. Yes. That was really funny. And he's talking about having sex with goats. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, the in- hilarious. Because the interesting thing was, just slightly devi- yeah, deviating, but there was um, a film that everyone watched in this country in the 80s, which was Betty Blue and Beatrice Dahl. Was, um, she was the blind woman in the, in the taxi, I think, wasn't she? You know, I don't know if I saw Betty Blue. No, but if you if you're in the UK or Britain during the um, in the eighties, you know, Betty Blue was one of those films you had to watch at least three times. Oh, I might have to watch that. I have to get on Criterion. I'm I'm into watching old movies these oh, days. Oh, yeah, that's good. So look, so yeah. some, so look, Punk came along, and you you know we had like Doctor Feelgood, and then we had the Damned, and then obviously the Sex Pistols, the Clash, and then the doors flooded open. And then it all went slightly downhill, as these things do. You had the Ramones, and then you had television, Talking Heads, Blondie. I mean, so you were sort of coming along at that sort of a period of which was the, I suppose people term it as like almost the post-punk kind of era where there was the sort of light change, where where the initial party had started so well. It slightly fallen apart, hadn't it, really? So you brought in quite a different sound, because there were bands like Art, weren't there? And, um, yes... There was a kind of, yeah. So it was slight. It was slight, like slightly later. 
because Pat was in James Chancellor Contortion. She was in the Contortions. Do you yeah. know that band? Yeah. Yeah. So that was pretty punk, but it was, I don't know, it was like very hard. That was, that was the beginning of post-punk because it had that funky element to it, and so did we. We were kind of getting back into funk music instead of the more rock. Yes. And like tribal things, tribal just like, you know, percussion. And I, I know Dee and I were really into percussion and into reggae. And we, we brought that to the band because we loved that kind of music. We were listening to all different music from around the world. Yeah, it was definitely, like, yes. So it was, it was, there was more room for it then. I think it was just kind of paved. Cause you've, I, I feel like the bands, like the Voidoids and, and Blondie and television, I just saw this or listened to this interview where they, they're not considered punk at all because only the Ramones and the Ramones are still like a little distilled. And, and to me, and all those labels, it's really hard to label things. I do know that it shifted after, you know, CBs, oh, there were more clubs and there, was, there were more bands. And you had this kind of, you could do whatever you wanted. And there were a lot of these old ex-art students. You just, well, you're just going to express yourself. You might not really play your instrument that well, but you're going to learn how to just express yourself through sound. Yes. It was really open. It was a great moment. Just it was just really open. Well, I suppose yeah, labels are a bit tricky. But there was something. There were the bands who just kind of were, yeah, copying the sort of punk, you know, like say the Sex Pistols, and started to just sound like you know quite boorish boys with guitars and throwing the posture. But there was there wasn't that much interest in the next. So that phase was a bit tedious, but then there was the phase which was the sort of more post-punk arty stuff, which was quite unusual. Mm-hmm. So in this country, we had you know people like the um, the raincoats, and then you know yes, like there I was love the there was like um, Wire and the Nightingales and the, the Marky Smith and the Fall, and so there was yes. um, you know Public Image Limited. So there was people really sort of pushing the sort of what would normally be a very conventional sound. Because I always, I know it's a bit sort of cheeky to say it, but I always thought that though the Sex Pistols were good, there was there was not much between them and the Monkeys really. You know, in the terms of kind of musicality. Yeah. I mean, and they were both. Yeah, mani- I always like Public Image better. Yes, Always. and to be honest, they were both manufactured, so let's face it, there was quite a lot in common between the two of them. <laughs> so um, that will kind of impress yeah. people for me saying that. But then and what comes along is... Better, is... better guitar, better guitar. <laughs> <laughs> but then things start to come along. And also it was a bit of a boys' club as well. I don't know, that's my theory. Mm-hmm. But then there was more, more sort of interest in music and then you had the all help all pairs um and yeah. such people like that started coming along and and it, i suppose there was a lot more people would listen to some you know augustus pablo dub reggae with kind of some interest in jazz and fused the thing, two things together and became kind of much more of an interesting sound so i think that there was a kind of a bit of a looking back at it now it, it's um quite extraordinary what people were trying to do and it, i think also not really going for the let's let's go for the gold records and uh, make lots of money as well. 
Right. I don't think there was that. In yeah, there. and I think there was just, but there was enough opportunity that you could do, make a living on a small label and playing gigs, and you could, you know, you could do something. You could reach people. There was yes. a healthy scene then. Well, and, yeah, and um, yeah, like in the early '80s, at least in, in the, but we we toured toured a lot in in uh, Europe and England. We were in England in '81 doing our, um, you know, single with Fetish. Okay. It was still '80, the end of 1980. Yes. Did you? I mean, did it take much time to get your sound together? Because what I've noticed in a lot of interviews is most bands have this quite. Quite a sort of four or five year narrative, you know. They get together, they spend about a year rehearsing and practicing. And in this country, we had people like John Peel. You had gatekeepers back then, you know. You had the John Peel show, which was, you know, he played quite a lot of interesting stuff. Then you had the music papers like the NME Sounds Melody Maker. Um, and then every little city and town and big city also had an, an alternative indie night as well. So there was always a, a venue and at least 100 to 200 people who would turn up to see a band, which was great, you know, and these weren't people that the band knew either. So that kind of helped encourage the scene. And I just wondered how long it took for you when you first got your, you know, the band together to sort of make it a sound that you started thinking, actually, this is this is starting to kind of work. Oh, it's a shockingly short time. I, we we formed in the end of '79, like maybe December. We started rehearsing. We rehearsed well November, December, January, and our first gig was February, and then it kind of just took off because we had seven songs and they were very unusual, and and it was unusual to see three women up front. So I think we we were fortunate in that way although being three women up front <clears throat> posed other problems later down the road and on the road <laughs> it's, yes. it was, it, it's not it wasn't easy being three women you know up front finding because they people lots of companies wanted to and, uh, change our look or they didn't quite get it so we were a little off to the left. Yes, quite a lot. Yeah, but we, you know, I mean, we—I I had never really been in a band or sung before. I mean, in church choir, that's like it. And so I—I just—we uh, just, just did it. Nobody really asked. Just did it. Yes. We just—we were fearless. We just got together and put our weird little parts together and walking around. The East Village with, you know, headphones, Walkman. And you're getting the song, you're singing along, and getting the song down. It's very fun. Very innocent times, you know. Yes. And there was, yeah, there was like a ton of, ton of magazines here. There was East Village High, and um, which that was really good. We had Village Voice. We had lots of fanzines. It used to be healthy. They're they're gone now. But that was a, that was really a great. I loved the the papers. Yes, they really, you know. Well, we we used to love, you know. <laughs> yes, I know. 
not only buying them, but you'd keep them for years and decades until you just yeah. couldn't, you couldn't move house or flat anymore because it was just <laughs> you just couldn't face the idea. So you, you reluctantly threw them in the recycling and then regretted it ten years later. But yeah, some of those magazines and papers they were great. And how did you yeah. find New York? Because obviously, having seen quite a lot of documentaries and read stuff about it, it also it sounded quite a heavy kind of place to be with a quite a horrendous drug problem did you manage to how were you navigating that that period well um i don't know from the first time i came i I fell in love with the city i really liked it it's a walking city it's like a people city and you have to be very strong but i you know lucked out and escaped the the drug pull very early I, I, I just I just think it depends on the person, but I wasn't really pulled into it, but it was a big part of the scene, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and you just that was just part of it. And um yeah, it was a big part of it. But I, I feel like the main a lot of people put a lot of emphasis on the drugs, but really it was mainly about the music. And the partnership that you form with other bands and there's a real community. So the downside was there were a lot of drugs, but it was more than that. Yeah. You know, there's there's a there's a, a very, very tight community and we're still friends. And did you I mean because I've done, you know, quite a lot of interviews with bands from that period and there was almost a sort of psychobilly kind of seen as well with the rock cats and people mm-hmm. like smutty smith and uh tim scott mcconnell did you were you sort of picking up on those kind of people oh yeah sure and and sort yeah, of smutty smutty was a friend of mine we all we all kind of knew each other there was such different music you know musical ideas going around yes like we were really good friends with rabies, but we had nothing in common with them, you know, musically. <laughs> but you just you just kinda had respect for all this eclectic sound, you know, and they were like the Rockettes, the amazing thing was just seeing their passports that folded out and like hit the floor. They had like they toured so much they, they had to have extensions put in their passports. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Wow, that's that's what I wanted. Absolutely. I and, love touring, yeah. And also, you know, there wasn't just the music. There was the whole sort of Andy Warhol scene, which was part of that kind of the Maxis, Kansas City, and then you had Maplethorpe, then you had the Patti Smith. So it does seem to be one of those places where the stars lined up and everything was kind of really very exciting, as, as well as, you know, as you said, there was an, an, a network of... Yeah, and community that helped sort of facilitate that. So, did you sort of feel that you were sort of part of a, a kind of a creative zeitgeist at that time? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think we we um, knew that Andy Warhol, the, the Andy Warhol scene, and with Jean Michel Basquiat, it was still very heavily heavy influence. I think in New York, all the way through the '80s, he had he had a really big influence on everybody. Yes, I would imagine. Yeah, I, I could have well imagined. And when and when you were sort of recording, because your first um, single came out on 
99 records, which is too many creeps, which was kind of one of those kind of classics that's kind of had phenomenal amount of plays on, um, yes, Spotify, which probably is a bit of a love-hate relationship, but it has been played a lot. I mean, did, um, yeah. yes. So who were 99 records? Can you remember? Yes, 99 records. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it was a very small label with, it had great. Um, Ed Ballman was amazing. He had a lot of. He had he had a really great vision, so he put us together with ESG and Liquid Liquid, and it just was a certain sound. And he was, uh, I think he was like a little visionary there, and it was you know great because you're really you we charted with that record and we toured immediately and it just happened very fast yes for us who were really naive and very young in our early 20s and didn't really i mean have a clue we just did it and we toured a lot and we kind of toured ourselves into the ground eventually but you know we we did a lot of playing and then and interrupted being able to write songs. Yes. I guess we didn't hard. really have a manager to really kind of get that get that vision together for us personally. But I felt like the label was great. And I I think those bands we have a lot in common with. Yeah, absolutely. E- I... ESG and uh, Liquid Liquid. They're very funky. They are. Because it was kind of a... It, was it Brian Eno who put together a compilation, which... Um, yes. No no New York. No New York, which kind of had that kind of status. And I know there's been other compilations since. And then you worked with uh, Topper Hedden from um, yeah. from The Clash. Was that... A, because cause a lot of people I spoke to, getting a good producer and getting the sound is kind of quite an interesting experience. Not always great. How did that... That that sort of session go? Oh, it was fantastic. I really loved working with him. He was he's really um he's really creative and boundless energy. He was really he was great. I mean we played with the clash at Bonds like three or four nights when we played opening for them and Topper we befriended him. And then, you know, we went into Electric Lady Land and got to record that. And he, it was his idea to put the piano in. It gave a lot of really great ideas. He was very, was really fun to work with. He didn't really work with a vocal. <laughs> that was the last thing in the world. And I, I don't think it's till recently. I We've worked with the, someone named Don Fleming, who... Oh, yes. Who, uh, you know, he's a great producer. He's worked with uh, Alice Cooper and different people, Sonic Youth. And he, he's, he really opened things up for me, working with him, with doing vocals. Yes. I feel like it's really, he gets a great sound and he, he focuses on it. Because a lot of people, the producers, they'll, they'll maybe think about the guitar more than anything or they have a certain thing they want to focus on. Well, we worked with Nona Hendrix um, and she was amazing. She she's an she's another force to be reckoned with. She's really an amazing um, producer. 
Yeah. But totally different than him. Like she likes to, she's like the punch in queen. So she'll punch in one note. <laughs> you know, she's very precise and a perfectionist. Whereas Topper was really loose and so is Don. Yeah. And I think, you know, loose kind of works for us better because we're a little bit of a loose unit. And were you, and, and during that time, were you sort of 24-7 on the band? You know, was it the only thing that you oh, would... yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was everything. Yeah, it becomes everything. Absolutely. Yes. And did you, um, yes. I was going to say, as, as the 80s progressed, because in this country, the good old UK, we, we started, there was that sort of slight change as kind of 82, 83 came along. I love these things, don't I? Um, you know, the, in, the, indie <laughs> pop, the indie pop world started the to appear. timeline, you've got to make a timeline. I know, God, I'm, I'm probably so irritating, aren't I? But, you know, you, you've no, had, no, no. <laughs> but, you know, we'd had the sort of peel and we had the Gang of Four in the magazine. And then, you know, you suddenly had, I suppose there was Echo and the Bunny Man, then you had Teardrop Explodes, and then 83, the Smiths appeared. And there was kind of a bit of a, ooh, there's a new kind of vibe again. You know, each few years, three to five years, mm-hmm. there's probably a, like yeah. a new kid in town. And the Smiths came and there was like, okay, this is a bit of a game changer. Obviously, I'm just talking about the alternative world, which I was obsessed with, not the kind of so much the new romantic and then the mainstream stuff with Trevor Horn and Frankie goes to Hollywood and Duran Duran. So um, I'm really, I like to specialise on the indie world. Um, so did you, as, as that sort of period started to change, obviously you'd sort of created quite a few singles and already put that together. Were you becoming... You know, because after a few years, you realise that you'd had the honeymoon phase of being in the band and then suddenly you realise you're in a, this kind of different, kind of a bit of a different atmosphere. How did you start well, to navigate yeah. that next kind of period after all the touring? And the f- well, we, impl- we imploded, of course. We imploded, which means it just kind of, uh, are you there? Yes. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I'm just listening. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, it just, it. Yeah, it just, um, we were touring too much. And then by 83, you know, Dee had left the band, Laura left the band. It was just Pat and I. And then that just, it's just, uh, you know, it's very sad. Like we, we played way too much and there were problems, you know, just, it wasn't, it wasn't moving forward. So we were kind of spinning wheels and then we weren't writing. So those are those are bad ingredients. Yes. And yeah, so we we kind of disbanded around eighty three. By yeah. eighty three, it was all over. And then very short lived. It was short. Yes. Yeah, but we got back together. So we so, kept it was the big joke. We get every five years we do a <laughs> reunion gig, and then and then by ninety. Three, I think ninety-three. It's like ten years later. Yeah. We we um, reformed. We started writing songs, and we got signed by Tim Kerr Records, which was um, I don't know if you know Tim Kerr Records, but we 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 um, signed with them, and we had a whole new set of songs, and we recorded with Nona. Right. And. Um, and then we had a run of it. We, 
we uh, we kept going till about ninety eight, and the record company dissolved. We were by that point we were we were on Polygram and Polygram folded. So we we got buried and our record Happy was um, shelved and we weren't able to release it and we just got really sad. So we took a break then too. Yes. You know, and other life things occurred, of course. And then um, then we got back together again um, with Val Opielski in 2000. 14 and we started writing again with her oh. and then we put out two records with her yes because um so what happens to the to you the you know the person the artist when you know sort of just slightly going back in that period when the band finished because i know that can be quite a loss how did you sort of navigate your your life for the rest of that decade until, you know, the band sort of came back, you know, for another kind of crack at it in the mid-90s? Well, you know, at that point, you know, I was a single parent and uh, I had to just, you have to survive. You just, I became a teacher. That's what I did. Right. Because I had to support, I had to support my kid and uh, that's what I did and it was good. Yes. It's a nice segue because you're you're performing. I'm I'm very good at a book read aloud. I can be very funny, and you know I I it made me kind of more of a an entertaining teacher. So I had you know a teaching career, but I kept doing you know music too. I mean I couldn't give it up. Like you just don't I don't know about ever giving giving it up. You just focus on what makes you happy which for me is writing you know the writing a song and how it just kind of poofs together like push scepters always have that magical thing where songs just come out of nothing yes. and all of a sudden you have a song we were we were very like instinctual so that that was um you know we we still have that but when... you, you know like life happens i don't know it's it's uh, it's very humbling. It is very humbling. Way, but it's very humbling, and I thought, I I have to support my kid, so that's what I did. Yes. And I have an amazing kid, so he's a super person, super feminist weirdo on the planet. I did good. I'm happy. Good, excellent. No, <laughs> just going slightly back, not that far though. Two thousand, you brought an album out. Very, very happy. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> what's your <laughs> memories of that? You was <laughs> oh lord. So we couldn't put out happy. Happy was the record that we did with Don Fleming that got shelved, right? Yes. So we had it in our heads. Okay, you know, like we're gonna we're gonna put it out. We're gonna redo the whole. We're gonna redo some songs and we're gonna put one out anyway. So we redid nails and we. It was really ill-fated because that that bass player, she was kind of on her way out, uh, Julia Murphy, and we were going to work with Don Christensen, who is the drummer in um, Ray Beats and Contortions, 
and he was producer at um, studio. Yes. And his brother died the night before um, we were recording, and it was like a disaster. And then, you know, we should have we'd been working with him pre-production and in retrospect we we should have just said no we're not doing it but we did it with a an engineer who was a nice guy he did it's just it just it was the kind of a disaster the session and no one really liked the performances and we didn't really if we would have had done it would have been a different record but you know that's the whole producer thing yes God. Yeah, we, that... we do need we do need a producer. After all, <laughs> we're all very you know opinionated, but we need somebody at the helm there. I think, yeah, because it it just it wasn't it didn't to me. I mean, some people like it, and there's some old songs on there that are really fun, like "Stir You Down." And they're they're great, some fun things. But the newer things we recorded during that session, I I could like never hear. I'd be happy. Oh, I never good. heard it. Okay. <laughs> but you, because you did three, at least three covers. You did Sister Midnight and then you did Cold Turkey. Yeah, that was for another, yeah, that was for another record. Sister Midnight was, um, that was for some, uh, I don't know, Iggy, Iggy tribute record. Right. And Motorhead, which is always quite an interesting kind of one to go for. Were you a, a Motorhead? Mo- Motorhead. Motorhead is our own song, though. Ah, okay. It doesn't have anything to do with the band. <laughs> it's, um, it has to do with me, like, driving 100 miles an hour in the desert. That's what that song has to do with. No, that's our own song. Right. We, we covered, we covered um, Cold Turkey, and then we, we, we are doing a version of Run, 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 the Velvet song, that's that's good. That's a good one. That gets the crowd going. Well, absolutely. It's always a it's always a classic. So then, because yeah. so as you were saying, um, very much earlier, you know, the band is now sort of. Is it the case that because my God, the last decade has been hit and miss, hasn't it? It's been reforming different members, even the original member dying. So, is it? Does it feel like it's a little bit more of a stable combo yeah now now it's now that we've since 2014 i feel like the songs i love the new songs they have kind of more of a feel of the old songs and they're very cathartic to sing them i I, i'm doing all the words now so i have a lot of fun writing with the band. Yeah, it feels very, very comfortable. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and we're putting out Best of Bush Tetra record this beginning of next year. It kind of all got pushed because, of course, COVID. But we're, we're um, negotiating for a Best of. And right now the catalog is on Bandcamp because we didn't have the catalog going. We were, we were holding it. We we got it back from Roar. Right. So we were we were waiting to you know culminate a deal. Yeah, we just persevere. Like we're we're very, you know, we're really tenacious little little Tetras. <laughs> Pat D, Pat D and I, you know, will always really stay together because it's forty years now. We had our fortieth 
anniversary. Yes. That's fan it's total family thing. It must feel and quite Bell's, Bell's a nice Bell's a nice addition, you know. Right. Yes. Yeah. So that's yeah. that's good. That's um because she's on base, isn't she? Yeah. So um, I was going to say, you know, because I'm going to say about the, the publishing, did you manage to, um, I mean, most people kind of find it quite confusing. How did you navigate that world that is publishing and the ownership of the music side? Yeah, thank God they have me because I did it all. Good. I'm, I'm, I, it might, must be the, you know, gene that made me a teacher too. I, I'm good with the bookkeeping. So I, you know, I took care of that. So all of all of our publishing's in order. You know, it's 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 not that complicated. But we're with ASCAP. I find the contract very complicated. You need a lawyer for that. But the publishing, pretty pretty straightforward. It's all online. But I, I'm good online. I had to learn it very early because mm -hmm. of teaching. And I was doing some design work on the computer. I, I started on computer really early. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah, it's, yeah, it is, because I have a lot of friends that are Luddites. <laughs> yes. 60-year-olds, you know. I but know. I, I really like, I, and I record on, on the computer, and I've, that's really freed me up to do other things. Yeah. I like, I like, uh, I like writing songs with my son. I'm doing that. The COVID, the COVID issue has been extremely challenging here. We just got a date. We just found out that we're playing Poisson Rouge in, in New York City. We're playing the, um, they have a live TV stream channel thing that they're doing and they're launching and we're, we're going to do one January 23rd. So, It'll be some semblance of getting up there and shaking my booty. Well, absolutely. And also... Yeah, because I kind of missed that. Well, I, I know. I would imagine everyone's finding that quite hard going, actually. And sort of the idea yes. of getting back onto the stage and doing it again is going to be yeah. quite an interesting and challenging time, I would imagine. Does that mean, as an artist, we, I know it's been a very tricky time, plus the whole political world as well. I mean, have you managed to create some emotional and mental space to uh, to look at, you know, more songwriting and more projects for the next year? And Yes. Yes, it's been really, really good, actually. I wrote four songs with my son. Um, and then I, I'm doing a project called Command B with Pat Irwin, who was, Pat Irwin was in B-52s and he was in Grey Beats. He's a really old, dear friend. He's one of my best friends. And he, he and I have a band. So we've been, we've, we've written, um, and Don Fleming is producing it. So we've been really having fun. And yes. you may have to get creative, like I'm, I'm going out to Shelter Island, he's got a house out there, and we're going to, you know, record by the beach. I mean, things could be worse. I'm like <laughs> trying to really, I'm trying to see the positive, because it's, you know, the news, it's so brutal. But I, I feel like creatively, yeah, I'm coming up with ideas and what to sing and what to say, and very fun, yes. really fun. I'm, I'm listening to a lot of music, so... 
Yeah. And I'm reading a lot. I'm reading a ton. Because it's kind of given. We were were on a little bit of a roll. um, Touring. You know, not, I mean, nothing compared to most bands, but we were doing our, our, our version of it. We, we were playing festivals. We played a lot of festivals. Yes. And obviously you must feel, you must feel very pleased or relieved. Or possibly not, but you about sort of the legacy of the band, the band, you know, still being you know so well thought of, and because because the other theory I've got apart from my obsession with those kind of little timelines of music was that you know the passing of time I've noticed like twenty five to thirty years almost to the month, you know suddenly people start looking back and making films and doing books because there was a mm-hmm. film on the on the um, the slits and then there was one on the wedding present and then an album they did called George best and then the go-betweens the chills even the dolly mixtures from the uk um and it's like you know some of them are sort of quite big numbers some are a little bit more you know just sort of straight to video kind of geek but still at the same time people are documenting and archiving they're, it yeah they're, they're interesting aren't they I yeah mean, the go-go's one the go-go's one was really interesting yes I don't know if you saw that i haven't and seen that i was one. never a go-go's fan but i I just thought, how interesting. This is just like the female Metallica movie. <laughs> that, you know, it's like they're horrible to each other. You know, they had this amazing manager that I, we would have loved to have had. She was so devoted. They get rid of her. You know, they just make these decisions. You need this human and you just, everything's happening and everything's going, blowing up so big and how people handle that. It's quite quite interesting to see like the girls were almost spot on with those Metallica boys. Yes. You know, and then they end up, you know, then they, they're, they show everybody and then they're playing together and they're like a little group again. It's just like, oh my God. Yes. It's very funny. Well, it was interesting with the Metallica one because it was it the one that the, the therapist seems to start to join yes. the band, and the rest of them say, "Look, actually, I, know, I love that." I can't believe and he was a they, th- he, he overstepped the mark so much. <laughs> yeah, but that's so typical because people want to be in bands, you know. And he really thought he was indispensable, but that's like the rub, man. You're yeah. never indispensable. No, he, you know, especially he, if you're a therapist. I know he made. Yeah, yeah I thought pop- it was hilarious. It was kind of. Did you? Because I, I, I love those rock documentaries. Did you ever sort of? There was Me one oh um, on the police. You know, they were sting and people, and oh, when I they reformed, they. Um, well, it was a documentary about bands reforming, and um, so it was like, is this a good idea or bad? And you know, it's pretty mixed down the line. Obviously, sometimes mm-hmm. it could go well, sometimes not, but. The sting, so the police got together, and obviously it's a huge money-making number, you know, and there's kind of issues. Right. So everyone's having a great time because they can see the bank, you know, the, the bank account's looking good. But the two people who really aren't enjoying it is Sting and the drummer, you know, um, Stuart Copeland, and they, they really yeah. aren't having a good time. So they get a ther- they have band therapy, you know, to sort of sort out their problems. And I think, in a way, what was needed was they both just set this had to listen to how the other person felt and then realise they had to take responsibility mm. for their words and actions, mostly their words. And I think it made them, well, especially Stuart, you know, made him realise that he couldn't just say all these things to Sting because they really did sort of 
hurt, basically. So did you ever feel that looking back, mm -hmm. band therapy could have been a good a good way for your, <laughs> yes. your band? Well, we were so young, though, you know, that we probably wouldn't have. We, we, we didn't even we didn't even want to pay um, a manager the 20 percent. You know, we were brats. But um, I think that it is like a marriage. It's totally like a marriage. You're there. You're together. You know, you hang on to resentments and it's just, you know, it's just they're hanging there and they're they're bound to pop up. But our band, we, we avoided a lot of the real competition and pressure by just we do everything equal shares. So even with the new bass player, we, we split everything equally. And we don't worry about who's contributing what to songs. Like, and I think that that's really tough when bands do that. I mean, I can see why some people do more, but it, it saves a lot of grief. Yes. And I feel like I'm very, very close to Pat, Pat's place. Like she and I spend a lot of time as friends together and it makes it really nice. I'm lucky. I feel lucky. It's unusual. Because usually you don't. You see them whenever you're playing and then, like, please get me away. <laughs> but um, I, she and I spend a lot of time together. And, you know, I, I feel really, like, so lucky with that. I mean, and Dee's kind of like my, my brother. Yes. But, uh, yeah, and that's, that's lucky. I, I feel like we, we do try to listen to each other. But that's been because we all had separate therapy. <laughs> we all had our own separate private therapy. Yeah, but, you know, and you go through things and you um, hopefully grow as a person. And so that only brings it, the more maturity to the band because before that we were really immature. It was ridiculous. <laughs> I guess it's... Arrested, develop, arrested development. I, that's what I blame it on. Also. That's what happened. I think with most bands, though, you have to have that sort of the youth and the being able to slightly abuse your body a bit. Well, you know, not necessarily on drugs, just on sleeping on bad floors, for one thing. And having and bad, bad food. And bad food, terrible food. And um, terrible But also food. you have to have that sort of slight arrogance and naivety and to get up and do what you do, really. And um, if, yeah. you, if you take any of that away, you probably wouldn't get up and do it. So... When it works, at least, you know, you make yeah. good music. And, um, yes, that's good. I mean, if you could have said something then to, your, to an 18-year-old self, you know, you could have just whispered in their ear and said, oh, yeah, just there's a couple of things I've just learned over the decades just to watch out for. What would, what would you tell them? Mm -hmm. But, see, it's like, to me, you're dealing with other people that you can't change. So really, I mean, I don't know if I could have done anything differently. You just, you know, you have to be like Popeye. You have to be yourself. I am what I am. <laughs> you know, you have to really just, uh, and I did that. I don't know. I don't have any, um, you know, I mean, in, in as far as the band goes, I think there were a lot of things out of my control that I couldn't control. And that was very frustrating, and I don't know what, I could have done differently. There was nothing I could have done. Yeah. It was very hard to see the band fall apart because that was way before I had my kids. That was when 
83. And yeah, it was, that was like, you had asked me that and I wasn't completely transparent about that. I mean, I didn't have my kid until 89, the end of 89. So I had years of, yeah, I mean, I felt like, oh my God, we blew it. If we had only, you know, blah, blah. But it was like, it wasn't up to me. I tend to be the cheerleader and, you know, I get, you know, I do a lot of business stuff and marketing. I'm very busy. Yes. But, but, but I'm, you know, it's the whole thing that is that you're a group. So other people are going through other things and it, it played out how it was going to play out. And that's yeah. the risk you take. You're, you know, there are really positive things about working with people, but how they're going to implode, you have no control over that. No, that's true. And, um, yes, because it's, and, and luckily no one had a massive drug, drug issue, which is often the thing that really does finish a band as well, which is um, tricky, tricky times. Yeah, there's some, there's, there's survivors. Yeah. But, you know, when I saw the Gogos, their manager, she was pretty amazing. I would have liked a woman manager. Finding a good manager. I think, yeah, that would have been something I would have told my at least 20-year-old self. Get yourself a manager. Insist on the manager, not that they would have gone along with it. So, <laughs> but, <laughs> You'd have probably said, yeah. It is something in hindsight. It's like that really helps because otherwise you're just these out-of-control um, immature people. Probably quite life. loud. Probably a bit <laughs> shouty as well. Most people when they're young. Uh, oh, loud, rude, wild. Screaming. Oh, we, we were naughty. We, yes. Absolutely. And, um, do you, yeah. Is it the case then, just lastly, I mean, reforming and then having this as much more of a steady operation or ship or just band, um, Did it? does it feel like... I would hate to use the word healing, but does it feel like you've managed to sort of make the band feel like a much better experience than if it just all completely had happened and exploded and was over and it's never, you haven't... Yeah, yeah, it's almost like it's a second chance, really. I mean, it's really nice. It, musically, I'm not saying it's a second chance. We're going to be the top of the pops, but it's a second chance for us to write write more music. I mean... I mean, that's what it's all about. I love writing new songs. Yes. Very exciting. I love recording them. I love playing them. I love writing lyrics. I've got, really gotten into that. That's really grown. But I I was, I really love the lyrics I wrote in the happy lyrics. Those are all but one are mine. So I, I really, it's a really way for me to get, um, express myself. Yeah, it's through the lyrics. I like it. And um, as you as you mentioned, I think uh, earlier was David Bowie's Black Star was you know though he was was his probably one of the best albums he ever put together. So um, I know it was like gut wrenching. I mean, it's really uh, really amazing. I mean, this is a time I think for people to really dig a little deeper. Yes, God, we're going to dig. And that's definitely what's happening with me, digging a little deeper. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, look, this has been fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much for your time. And, Thanks, um, David. It was fun. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I feel like you're like right next door and you're really across the, across the water. <laughs> I- 
And that is the end of the interview. A massive thank you to Cynthia Slee, to um, Yes from the Bush Tetras to uh, find out more about life in the band. Anyway, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do at C86 Show. All these have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, just find them. C86 Show, it's good. But uh, if you do get in touch, just keep it positive. Otherwise, don't bother. Life is too short. Anyway, have a great week.